Good morning, everybody. So I'll just sit over here. This is really a conversation. Um, I just have some remarks that I'd like to make um, to you and then open it up for questions if you have it, because I know parents usually, you don't have any questions for Beth. Maybe you're saving them all up for me. Um, <clears throat> and I'll start um, by saying that, that I think to, to, um, to uh, deepen your comments, that there's so much more than their testing, as you know. Um, and uh, testing is just really one small slice of who they are, <clears throat> although at times it can seem like that takes on, on great significance. I also have two grown children um, who survived all the testing that they uh, could have. And, and it's, I was just sitting here thinking, wow, like, that's so not who they are. Um, but I know at times, and they, you know, they do matter at times at different signal points in development. Um, but uh, but I, what I'm here to do is really broaden out the discussion of, of who your fifth graders are. Um, and um, I call this talk, Mom, You Just Don't Understand. Because um, I think at around fifth grade, um, you know, they start to differentiate from us, um, and they start to realize that they're a different self from us. I mean, it's been a slow process, evolving process over time, um, but um, <clears throat> they, they, start to, uh, they, they start to do that. Um, the, my remarks are sort of general. <clears throat> All kids, there's a huge spectrum and bell-shaped curve of where kids are, no matter whether they're five or 10 or 15 or 25. And so I'm trying to hit some of the highlights of where pre-adolescents are, knowing that if we took all of your children, um, they'd, be on, they'd be in all over the place. Uh, so it's a little hard to make generalizations about where kids are. Uh, so with that caveat, we make a lot of generalizations of where kids are. But knowing that some of you, you may scratch your head and think, that doesn't sound like my kid, or that is just my kid, or my kid's totally different um, from, what, from what you're describing. Um, and in some ways, parenting um, boils down to an exercise in anxiety management. You know, it starts from getting pregnant, <laughs> being pregnant, uh, when they're born. Um, I think there's a worry gene that hasn't yet been identified that gets turned on uh, with parenting. Um, and some have it more and some have it less. Um, and so, and then we have kids who get anxious, and so we, we have to figure out how do we manage our own anxiety uh, and our children's anxiety. And I think a lot of that comes down to having a lot of knowledge about what's going on with children. Um, and so I think that the more we can know about development, know about children, I think that helps our anxiety. And when we're in more control of our anxiety, <clears throat> and we can help them. Sometimes talks like Beth's can increase anxiety. I know when I was in rooms like this, like I would start thinking, oh my God, like this testing, what's gonna happen? And what's it gonna show? And where's my child gonna be? Um, so, but this is the part of the talk that's hopefully gonna help calm down any anxiety that you have maybe raise some questions that you can have and, and, and I can answer them later. Um, <clears throat> so I have a, a, a few opening remarks and then I'm gonna talk about a few topics. Another opening remark besides anxiety management, um, another way I look about develop <clears throat> at development is that it's an exchange between parents and their child about power and autonomy. Who has power, who has autonomy? And trying to figure out with our children where they are, really from the very beginning, they're, they're balancing between wanting to be older and wanting to be um, younger wanting to be independent and wanting to be dependent. Um, and it's very clear very early on where they are and where they want to be. And as they get older, I find that it gets much more challenging to figure out. Like one moment your fifth grader can seem like a ninth grader, and the next minute your fifth grader can seem like a kindergartner. You know, one minute they're sort of in your lap, you're thinking, God, you're too big for my lap. Um, and another minute they like basically want the keys to the car. Um, and so it's hard to figure out where they are at any one moment. Um, and that's part of the challenge of as you enter adolescence, because that divide grows uh, and grows and grows. Basically, and we'll get to say, they just want you to be there for them, wherever they, wherever they are on that scale. And that is a challenge to figure out, like, when do I need to sort of support their independence, and when do I need their, to be there for when they are uh, become more dependent. Um, and so, so much is changing at this time. 
Um, and that's the other interesting thing about middle school is that you can have kids who are delayed in terms of their maturation or they take their slower with their maturation and others who in fifth grade have already started to you know, bloom and blossom. Um, and so their differences are all over the map and I don't envy the fifth grade teachers who are here trying to figure out where, um, where this particular child is. And even that kid who can look you know, very mature and old is still in a fifth grade body. Um, and so that's one thing I want to caution those of you who have children who are maturing at a more rapid rate. Um, and even if they have these advanced verbal skills to know they're, they're still a fifth grader. They're always at heart a fifth grader. Um, <clears throat> and so, but what are they experiencing? And I think we can all go back to those fifth grade pictures or sixth grade pictures of ourselves where we look totally horrible. At least I look totally horrible. It's sort of <laughs> embarrassing. And other pictures when your kids look at them, they go, oh my God, dad, you look like that. And whatever. Um, <clears throat> so, but imagine what it's like to be them, because we were like that once. Their bodies are maturing at different rates, that their faces are like, their noses get big, and nothing's caught up to each other. Um, and so, and there are, some are very focused on that, um, and others are quite oblivious. In fact, there's an oblivious factor that some of your children may have, they, that all these things I'm talking about don't even seem to apply. They just sort of go through, like not even paying attention. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and, and so some, some are blessed with that, uh, and, and sometimes we wish that they'd be more focused on things. But some of the key things that happened, um, one of the, the key things that happened in, in this time period has to do with friendships. Um, they move out of the house in terms of who they seek approval for. Another, so there's four concepts here. One is you know, the focus outside of the family. The other is increasing independence, which I touched on. Uh, the other is changing uh, changes to their body inside and out. And the other is moodiness. Um, and no, your children don't have bipolar disorder. Um, and um, but we'll talk about all of those things. But a big question for them, a central question is, who am I and where do I fit in? Because up until fifth grade, everyone and, and everyone sort of looks alike, talks alike, thinks alike, is kind of alike. Um, and if you, if you um, go into, and I spent a lot of time in schools, and if you go into an elementary school, a classic, say, public elementary school, like everyone you walk in the classroom, it's like they all look this. Who's the kid I'm supposed to be observing? Like they kind of all have, a, they're all the same height. They all sort of look alike. But with puberty, they all start to look very different. Um, and then by the time you go to high school, it's sort of like an alienation. Like you, like they just everything that you could possibly have is all over. But it starts to happen in fifth grade. And as their bodies start to change, they start to feel like, who, who am I? What do I look like? Where do I fit in? And that's going to also correspond with what's going on in the type in, in, in terms of their brain development, which I'll get to in a minute. But kids become exquisitely sensitive to these kinds of issues, like who am I, what do I look like, who are my friends, what do I say? They start asking lots of questions. And now we move to brain development because what we know about brain development helps um, uh, underline a lot of the points that I'm going to be making and also helps us understand where they are. So what's happening inside the brain? What's happening inside the brain is it's starting to develop a unique sense of self. They have an increased ability to analyze things. Their abstract abilities start to come online. They can now do different things. I think you've probably noticed by this point in the year that their work is probably harder for them than it was up until this point. The content starts to become more important. And so uh, it's, 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 it's more about absorbing information and making connections. So there's kinds of things that they really couldn't do for the most part earlier than this. Now, why can they start to do that? Because up until this point, the brain, and it still is making lots of connections, but up through third or fourth grade, the brain is making connections in, uh, at, at a rapid rate. Um, and it's doing that um, in, a, in excess of what's being shaped in what we call pruning away. The brain is a very redundant organ. And so we have many, many more connections than we need. And in the early years, the brain is um, replicating and making numerous connections of things that are not necessarily essential. By the time children get to third, fourth, and certainly now fifth grade, 
the brain is starting to become more efficient. It's becoming uh, a, 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 an organ that, that, that actually can appreciate what's being taught to them. And why is that? So what happens at this time <clears throat> is that instead of making lots of connections, the energy of the brain is put into what's called myelination. And those of you who may remember, there may be neurobiologists in, in the audience, and I apologize to you uh, for the oversimplification here. But when we have a nerve cell, the long part of the nerve cell is called the axon, and the axon is how the signal gets transmitted from, the neuro, from one neuron to the next. Um, and over time, fatty tissue or myelin gets laid down. And that's what creates the white matter of the brain. And that's what's happening at a rapid rate right now in your children. And when that happens, the brain goes from being kind of like a, a, a tumbled, jangled set of neurons to a much more efficient organ. And, what, and that allows them to do more things more quickly. And so the work comes more easily. And it also allows them to be, um, extract more from their environment. Um, some of the people who think about earlier when I gave you the fifth grade uh, the kindergarten talk, for those of you who are alumni of that talk in the audience, I talked about how young kids are more um, explorers. The way their brain works is they're exploring and they get lost, they're walking from the car up to the kindergarten because they see this little stick or they see this little flower. And we're saying, no, get to class, like I've got to get to work and it's like over to 815. And the way our brains work is to get from point A to point B. The way young child brains work is to like take everything in and try and make sense of it. A fifth grader's brain is becoming more like that adult brain. They're getting from point A to point B much more quickly. Um, and so there's a great advance that happens and it sets them up for the challenges and demands of life in school. But it also makes them more painfully aware of what's going on in the world. So part of what's painfully aware is this social thing that I was talking about. They become more aware, again, that question of who am I, how do I fit in, who do I fit in with. Um, and then a way of trying to manage that, what happens is that's when you see the upsurge in, um, in groupings and when things go well, there's sort of friendship groups that work in a healthy way. But when things go not so well, it can turn into cliques and jealousy and possessiveness. So when kids pair, say, some social anxiety with this acute awareness of what's going on in their world and in their life, they can respond to that by acting in ways that are sort of self-preserving. And so that's why the fifth grade social dynamics often change. Sometimes, and I think this hap hasn't happened in your class, or at least not quite a bit, they can actually catapult over to late middle school and start to think about dating. So sometimes what happens in this, right, in this talk is like, and I don't think that's happened, so maybe we can not have to talk about that. We can get to that towards the end. Um, but they're very focusing on, on how do they manage their social world. And so that then is coupled with a heightened emotional suffering and moodiness, and then no one has bipolar disorders. So you can have you know, this heightened awareness, this sense of the social world, and then kind of moodiness, and all those things can you know, end in your lap at dinner with tears and upset and unhappiness. What I also am happy to tell you is that the emotional uh, shelf life of a fifth grader is not that long. <laughs> the expiration date on a lot of their emotions fades very quickly. Now, there are some kids who are very sensitive and do have issues, and I don't want to minimize that, but I'm not here to say, talk about this uh, special case scenario. I'm talking about sort of general development. Um, and so you may see at home at night terrible upset about what happened that day. Um, and so, um, so in terms of parenting, and we'll get to that a little later as well, so basically the message will be to listen. We know that as kids get older, it's not necessarily starting in fifth grade, but certainly by high school, there's MRI evidence that social rejection is almost equivalent to loss of life for high school students. And the, 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 the seeds of that are sort of laid down now. And so we can look at where in the brain, um, uh, you know, sort of real trauma happens. And for adolescents, those parts of the brains are activated with social rejection. So it's not just something that um, sort of we see behaviorally, but we actually have good brain evidence that this occurs. But again, this is sort of, um, sort of later on, but this is, it, this is where it starts. 
And so that's why probably at home you may start to see you know, kids talking about those groups. Earlier they talk about like who's my best friend and that best friend might change or who's excluding me or not excluding me and you can't say you can't play. And it was very much like one to one, like this group of one or two or that group. Uh, but now what happens is these, these larger groups form and their identity starts to form. So we get the sense of who are the you know, smart kids in the class or who are the baseball players, who are the athletes and who are the musicians and who are the actors and who are the artsy types. You start to see those labels start to come about early in fifth grade sort of solidifies as they get later in middle school. Um, but that process comes about because they really are trying to see where they fit in, where they fit in um, into their social group. Um, and so they can feel terrific about that one minute, one minute, or they can feel lonely and unaccepted uh, at another. Um, so <clears throat> back to sort of the brain, the other thing that happens in the brain is the frontal cortex really starts to develop. Um, and so again, these abilities in the classroom take on, they're much better at planning, they're much better at problem solving, and they're much better at information processing. So they can start to have conversations with you about things like what you're listening to on NPR on the way home, or information they're taking out of the classroom. And so you can figure out like where they are, and you can start having sort of more sophisticated um, uh, conversations. At the same time, in life, as you can say, see, you see where I'd like to get to, sort of there's flip sides. You know, everything's a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, they can sort of figure out more complex issues. Some of them may be talking about women's marches this weekend or what's going on in our country or what's going on with, they start to um, think more broadly, sort of about immigration and poverty, sort of the things they start to get anxious about sort of broaden out from, say, like their body. They become less scared of things like monsters or you know, phobic things that they may have had or nightmares that they're having. They may get more thinking about the broad world. They may get more worried about like what's happening like with earthquakes or fires in California. So things they may have ignored or not really paid attention to now start to come online. Um, and so, um, so in addition to that, they can start to evaluate us more rigorously, uh, which can become um, <laughs> problematic at home. So our flaws, which may have been, um, they may have been blind to before, start to become more apparent to them, and they enjoy sort of pointing them out to us. Um, and so that's when, I think eye rolling is sort of, like many things like puberty starting early, I think eye roll is starting earlier, and so like these things may happen in first or second grade for some of your children. But that sort of um, sarcasm, sort of pointing things out to you, uh, which can become kind of difficult for us. Um, the important thing here is it's okay for us to make mistakes, and it's okay for them to make mistakes. We, we, yeah, I preach this a lot. We don't have to be perfect whether they're in kindergarten or fifth grade or they're teenagers. The important thing is they're really watching us as they always have, and it's important to own up to those things. If they point out that we've made a mistake, we shouldn't be defensive um, about that. Another topic I like to talk about has to do with gender <coughs> and what's happening in terms of gender at this age. So there are many different types of expression, um, and the whole topic of gender, you know, as these five years that we've been giving this talk, uh, we can spend a whole topic on gender, notions of gender, gender fluidity, kids thinking about who they are as gender. These are all new, they're new for me, like my world as a developmentalist and a child psychiatrist has changed quite rapidly. But I'm not gonna talk about that so much as sort of like general gender things, because as they become more um, aware of who they are and how they fit in gender for their role. I like to say that boys and girls, we like to discriminate and sort of talk, oh, girls are like this and boys are like that. If we make bell-shaped curves, frankly, there is much more overlap than distinction. Um, it's just the expression comes out. You know, people tend to think, oh, girls are so clicky and girls are so social hierarchical and girls are this and girls are that. I'm very fond of saying that boys are actually the same. It just comes out in different ways. Boys use their bodies to show their social dominance, whereas girls may use their words. I mean, girls have also used their bodies. 
Um, so, and boys get into social stuff too, it's just a lot less colorful at times. Um, they know who's the strongest, who's the fastest, who's, you know, who follows the <coughs> Patriots, who's following the Eagles, Eagles fan myself. Um, and, um, and they divide up very much so along those lines. Um, but boys also do things to get attention in slightly different ways than girls. So they may be more likely to be the class clown, be more goofy, try and get negative attention. Um, girls are mostly off their radar. Um, and their ways to be successful are, can be slightly different than girls. So for example, like who's good at what video game? <coughs> we'll talk about electronics later. Um, girls, again, the same thing. Their bodies are changing probably uh, earlier than boys. So they're going through some of that difficulty earlier. Boys will go through that later. Um, but again, they're thinking about how they fit in, who are their friends, who aren't their friends, how are we gonna sort of negotiate the social uh, landscape? Um, again, uh, dating, I always have down here because sometimes it's a topic. My sense of dating, obviously, is if they say they want to go on a date, say, what do you mean? <laughs> um, what is a date to you? And you don't have to let them go on a date. You really don't have to let them go on a date, if that even comes up. I find that dating in this age is more about the parents living vicariously through their children and sort of being excited that, maybe, you know, that their child actually has this opportunity. It's really not enough. They are really not ready. They are not ready. Um, and so, um, so, uh, so, but basically, the idea of what is dating is another concept I like to share with parents is anytime they use a word like that, you don't have to take them at face value. Like ask them what they mean, whatever it is that they come home with. Um, it seems that they have like, the, uh, many children at foot school have very sophisticated vocabularies, which is a wonderful thing. They do well, in, that's, that's, they do well in verbal comprehension and anything having to do with reading. We're a community that supports that and values that as we should, but that doesn't mean as parents you can't question what they mean by something. And you can delight in their vocabularies, but it also means that you can sort of ask them what they mean. Um, which actually gets me to um, technology. That comes up a lot in this conversation. Just like gender, everything is changing. Um, I have some notes back from five years ago that have to be altered based on, you know, kids didn't have cell phones in sixth grade, and now they don't have cell phones much earlier. Um, I think when they have things, it's less important as what you do with them. And that's always been the concept, is how you use technology, not whether they have tech. Now, obviously, whether they have technology is a question, and, and, it's, a, and it's a family value. And for those families who want to delay those things, I want to support you. Um, and just in many ways that families are different, technology is another way in which you might differ. You may have a different culture, different foods you eat, where you're from, uh, what you celebrate, what you worship. All of those things are differences, and it's okay to say to your child, if you feel strong as a family, that they don't, you know, have X, Y, or Z, that this is something that is important for our family. Um, but limit setting in general communicates your values to your children. Um, and, um, and I think that applies to electronics as well. I don't have the answer about what to do with your child who's on her phone or his phone all day long, or wanting to do this or that. Um, the answer I have is sort of how you manage it and that you're consistent with those values. Um, so one thing that I think is important and it's certainly um, at this age is that they shouldn't have them in their room when they're sleeping or supposed to be sleeping. And that is a habit. These are all habits that actually in fifth grade start to get laid down for later in life. Um, there's no reason for a fifth grader to have, when they go to sleep, a phone or a computer in their room. I can't really think of one. They'll think of 150. <laughs> and I'm sure they're all very good at negotiating, future lawyers of America. Um, but I think that that's something that really often leads to poor sleep habits. Uh, leads to uh, attachment to that phone because, and again, this happens more later on. Uh, this is a preview, maybe it's happening in fifth grade, but they did that they have to have it. Um, later on, they might say, well, I need it for my alarm. You know, the phones do everything. Like, um, but there's a thing called an alarm clock, uh, this ancient thing that you know, was in the Smithsonian. 
Um, yeah, same thing in dinner, the dinner table or restaurants. I want to give you encouragement to not allow anyone's phone. And, and it starts really with us, right? They watch us. So, and when they say to you, but mom, you're on your phone. Dad, you're on your phone at the dinner table. You're right. Um, and so, uh, or even in, in the car, um, I want to give you permission to sort of set those kinds of limits because basically those things keep people away from each other and keep families apart and not together, not having conversations. So yes, if you're on long car rides and, and you need the kid to be occupied, I'm not saying you should never have it in a car, but what about conversation? What about the radio? Um, maybe you could use the phone for your Spotify playlist and have everyone listen to the same thing. Um, um, so, and the same thing with headphones uh, in the car. Again, there are times and, and, and ways in which, but I want to kind of be the hardliner and give you permission to say, we're not a family that allows headphones in the car because I'm here with you. In fact, the best thing to do in the car when you have more than one child is to listen um, to what they're saying, especially when you're driving the carpool. That's sort of the classic thing, right? Like when you're driving the kids wherever they're going, uh, they forget the adults in the car, and you'll probably get the most information out of them. Um, which gets me to another point I'd like to make, is that the information you get to them, depending upon your child, starts to shrink as they get older. Um, and so use any opportunity you can uh, to listen in. And the less questions you ask with your child, the more information you're going to get. Um, and that I tend to tell parents that not ask why questions, like why this, why that. If you remember, I certainly do, feeling like I was assaulted by my parents, and they weren't assaulting me. <laughs> they were just asking me how my day was, and to me, I remember being maybe a little older than fifth grade, like, I wanted to scream at them, like, stop asking me any questions. Um, and I think that's universal for kids. They feel that hypersensitivity to their skin um, that comes like right here at the boundary between themselves and the world. And that when you ask some questions, often you may not get you know, um, the answer that you're looking for, or they're feeling kind of pressured, even though you're not pressuring them. The more you just listen and give them space and give them time, the more information um, that you're going to get. Um, the other thing I like to say about limit setting is if they tell you you're the meanest parent in the world, or you know, Jonah's mother doesn't do that, you know, or Sally's father doesn't do that, you know you've won. Um, I think it's very important to, 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 um, to, to realize that and not take that at face value either. That when they lob that at you, like you're the worst mom, I hate you, um, that is going to pull at your heart. It's very hard um, to not respond to that and not to feel like they mean it. In that moment they mean it, but if you step back and don't respond, I, I think uh, you'll be in a much better place. Um, the other thing uh, I like to talk about is not taking things at face value is when they come home, I was talking before about how their brains, you know, their, they can be, their emotional arousal can be very high, they're trying to fit in, things come home, and they may blow up at home over something. Um, the response is not to pick up the phone right away, right, and do something about it. The, the thing to do at that moment is to just sit and see what happens. Again, I'm going to reinforce that line about the, the, the expiration date on their emotional world, you know, is very short. What I feel is important is to see how that plays out over a couple of days. Which gets me, and then if it keeps playing out, then you might go into activation mode and figure out what to do. That might be a time to call the teachers and email the vet and say, hey, wait a minute, my child has come home and this has gone on for several days, or they've been talking about this for a while, there seems to be something in school, I really want you to know about it, let's see what we can do about it. Um, and what we can do about it, I think, actually um, uh, gets to sort of how we build their confidence and how we make them their better selves, which is really what we're, we're here for. How do you make your child uh, their better self? How do you take them on their trajectory and move it up in a way that's healthy for them? And that gets to um, sort of things that I like to stress with parents, which has to do with the, sort of the non-cognitive aspects. You know, Beth was talking purely about sort of the cognitive aspects 
I'll say what the ERB measures. Unfortunately, we don't have an ERB to measure the non-cognitive aspects, sort of their character. Um, and things like, and, and getting back to the point of, um, of whether you make that phone call or not, um, by fifth grade, they're really ready to start to advocate for themselves. And so one key principle that I think is important for kids to learn is how do you, A, stand up for yourself? How do you ask questions? And whether that's if someone is treating you unfairly or you know, you're in Mr. Solomon's class and you understand what he's saying, um, that you don't just sit there and you guess, like you have these great fifth grade teachers who are super responsive to your children, um, and then helping them realize that if they're not understanding something, like a great tool in their toolbox as they get older um, is to ask, this, ask their teacher, if they get good at it in fifth grade, they'll be really good at it in high school where it really matters where they'll be going from class to class to class. They won't have a whole day you know, with Mr. Burke. They're gonna have 45 or 50 minutes depending on what school they go to. Um, and they may feel even more intimidated in high school. Um, so asking for, um, asking for help, standing up for themselves, having them go to their teacher or to Ms. Mello if they're having an issue in class, these people are, are, celebrate that and support that and really want to hear that um, kind of thing. And then um, uh, reinforcing that with your children when they do that. Um, you also want to appeal to that altruistic side. I find that the kids at the school are, are very altruistic. Kids in general, there's a gene, again, one of these genes that I think gets turned on. Like, <coughs> I always notice, and I actually almost didn't do it to someone who walked in the room, is that they open the doors for people and hold them. I mean, have you noticed that when you walk around campus? That if you're going into the building and there's a kid, and there's like, even sometimes there's more space, like there's that normal space you have when you hold the door open. If someone's like way up, you don't hold the door. They seem to know, and they even do it. Uh, I just am always very uh, pleased when I see that, and I'm always thanking them for doing that. And in fact, I almost not someone, maybe someone here, uh, an apologize. Um, I was rushing in, I'm less altruistic. Um, and you want to support them and, and sort of, you know, and ask them not necessarily what they got on their math test today, but what nice thing did they do today? Who did they help with? Who did they support? Who did they stand up for? And self-advocacy is not just advocacy for themselves, but who are they standing up for? Kind of how we teach them about bystanders. And if they see someone being treated unkindly or they hear unkind words being said, um, what did they say uh, and what did they do about it? Um, or really things that we can't measure on a test but are really important. Another non-cognitive trait that I think is important to recognize and to, and to support are taking risks. Um, what risk did they take? You know, what harder problem did they try? Or what other thing did they do that they thought they couldn't do? Um, and if they fail, that's really fine. Um, because I think they'll hear a lot more about it as they get to middle school is that concept of, of taking risks and how important that is. Um, um, uh, okay, so now just to, you know, people come to these talks to get some basic advice and I'm gonna end with some um, some basic advice, things like food, nutrition, and exercise. Healthy diet, I can't say nothing about healthy diet. They didn't teach us this in medical school or in psychiatry residency, but I've become a big believer in these concepts. Sleep, food, exercise, probably more important than anything I do in my office, uh, are those three concepts. What you eat, what they're eating when they get to school, uh, on the way to school, um, and what kinds of foods they're eating. It's I think we don't put enough emphasis on that. What, what's in their lunchbox, what are they bringing? Eliminating snack food. Um, you know, if any of you, again, football fan here, watching the Eagles game, which was a celebration, I would say, but all the commercials were about McDonald's $4 meals. And like how you get one, two, three, four, you get the fries, the nuggets, the soda, uh, and maybe in a shake. It was really repulsive to me to watch this. Uh, and and sort of that, that kind of thing is just, it, it, it's, 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 anyway, you can tell what I'm going with this. 
eating a healthy meal. Um, sleep is really important. Now, I'm sure most of your kids go to bed at a reasonable hour and get a good night's sleep. But as they get older, there'll be a lot of pressure to stay up later and later, as will their biological clocks um, get later and later. And what I find in working in the high school is that sometimes it becomes like a badge of honor that who got the least amount of sleep. Um, like I got five hours, I got six hours, I pulled an all-nighter. And that was things like we sort of did in college. It sort of like translated down to high school. No, like that is not something, that is sort of the wrong way to go. And again, the habits that you can institute at home in terms of you know, bedtime rituals and um, you know, brushing your teeth, putting in pajamas, what time that is, and emphasizing how important sleep is, and for us too. Like we're also all staying up too late. People who exercise more have healthier brains. There are studies looking at development of things like the hippocampus, which is involved in memory, and kids who exercise have a more highly developed hippocampus. And who knows if those studies will be replicated? Um, but it makes a lot of sense that the more you have time to blow off steam and exercise your body, um, and not every kid has to be an athlete, or not every kid has to be on the CFC and traveling to you know, Florida for tournaments in fifth grade, but just basic exercise, or things like yoga, uh, all those kinds of things I think that are, are sort of seeping into our culture are really important. And the other thing has to do with chores. It's really important that your child has at least one chore. Whether that's making their bed, or breaking in and out the garbage, uh, they should clear their dishes from the dinner table. Uh, these sort of nuts and bolts things I think are really important um, at all ages, but especially if you, again, you set that habit in place in, 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 in fifth grade, that's really important. Um, uh, where else? I also want to leave some time to um, for some questions. Um, you know, we'll talk about, I'm sure some parent asked me a question about violent video games. There's one answer, bad. You know, like, I, I see no value in kids in fifth grade or even through middle school playing violent video games. No one's ever told me a reason why. Are there video games that are healthy and good and should kids play video games? Again, certainly that's part of their culture. But violent video games, there's also a lot of research that looks at them if kids play sort of Sort of productive video games versus violent video games. In violent video games, the amygdala, which is the seat of emotional arousal and fear and aggression, gets activated. Doesn't get activated if they're playing some kind of building game on their computer. Again, how good is that? Can't be very good. Um, but I don't want to end on, on such a negative note in preaching this. Um, I think that um, this is a great age. Um, they're still really connected to you. Um, and the more you can do to keep them connected to you, spending time with them, listening to them, the importance of family dinners. I know people are pretty busy and kids have lots of schedules and we have lots of schedules. The more family dinners a week you can have where you just sit down and eat and put your phones away and have a conversation, even if it's like 15 minutes because everyone has to go in different directions, really, really important. Those kinds of things will pay off uh, in the long run. Um, and so I think, I just came back to your presentation as I end, I think you know, things like we're trying to build um, confidence and persistence as well as doing well. We all want our kids to do well academically, but that's a given. But I think we also want our kids to be confident, successful, self-starters, and those are things that we can, as I said, measure and test, but things that we as parents, that's our role as parents and supported by the school, those are things we can communicate and help our, our children with. So I want you to keep those things in mind that will help them build like healthy bodies and healthy brains. So I'm gonna end here, um, see what kind of questions you have. Um, that either I or that will find me.